Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. Indeed's new 2022 DNI report has just gone live. It's one of the most comprehensive studies into DNI issues in Australian workplaces. Click the link in this episode's description to get your free copy. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is often full of grey areas, uncertainty, and quite possibly fear. High Potential with Indeed is here to help demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations. Groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Kathy Ngo, diversity, equity, and inclusion changemaker and presenter. I spent over a decade in HR, corporate affairs, and communications, but I'm most passionate about pushing the boundaries relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Families come in all shapes and sizes. Long gone is the presumption that every employee is returning to a nuclear family after work. Diverse family structures mean family members support each other in ways that don't meet the stereotypes of the past. This diversity means that organisations need to adapt in order to be truly inclusive. Language needs to account for families that don't meet the definition of nuclear. Work arrangements need to consider multifaceted parental demands. Policies need to be updated to include all types of families. And employers need to realise that employees' family life may not resemble their own. The work-life balance is one of the harder aspects of post-COVID employment for family members to manage. But there are initiatives that both large and small organisations can deploy to ensure all of their employees and their families are supported at work, which can impact both their employees' work and home lives. This week, we're joined by Sarah Kruger, Managing Director, Human Resources Australia and New Zealand at Accenture, to talk about supporting diverse family structures in the workplace. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Sarah, you've had an extensive and exciting career at Accenture. Please share with our listeners what your role involves today. I have been at Accenture now or in the consulting industry for 25 plus years. And my current role is the CHRO for Australia and New Zealand. So what that effectively means is that I am responsible for all people related matters from sourcing talent, engaging talent, compensating, rewarding, measuring performance, making sure that people are doing engaging work. And ultimately, it also includes being responsible for inclusion and diversity and making sure that we've got an inclusive workforce and a diverse workforce and that all of our people feel safe within that. 
In this episode, we're talking about how to support diverse family structures. So in the context of work, what do we mean by diverse family structures? So I think family structures have evolved quite significantly and probably the level of evolution has escalated over the last couple of years. So where we have traditional families, that is a mum and a dad and and children, we now have a lot of single parent families. We have a lot of extended families, so multiple generations working and living together. And some of those generations often have care requirements or care needs. We've got families with complex issues. So you might have children with disabilities or acquired disabilities. You might have partners or members of the family that are suffering significant illnesses. You might have different needs in that space. You might have blended families, complex families. You've got LGBTI families. And then you've also got families who sometimes are starting later in life and there might be some struggles around that. So there's a vast array of different complex structures from a family perspective that are out there at the moment that need things in a different way and require things in a different way. And I'm certainly seeing a lot more people being open about their family structures as well. So how has this impacted the way leaders support their people and their family structures? I think it needs a couple of things. So I think it needs leaders to be conscious that there are different family structures out there and that we shouldn't make assumptions around whether someone talks about their family, what that means, if we don't know. So Sometimes it's appropriate to ask questions, sometimes it's not, but I think the key thing with that is not assuming that there is a specific family-type structure. I think it means that leaders need to be conscious of the way they engage and support people in doing things that they acknowledge that there's different needs for different families, whether it's because of being in a blended family or things like that and making sure that we treat those needs equally and we provide an opportunity for people to ask for those needs to be supported. And we need to create an environment where people feel comfortable and a workplace culture where that's acceptable. We also need to accept the fact that there are couples, individuals who are choosing not to have families and they need to be treated with the same level of equality and respect. And we shouldn't make assumptions around people because they're of a certain age or a certain gender, that there's certain paths that they're about to take and making assumptions about all people in all those sorts of different family settings is really quite important. There's a combination of things and a lot of it really does come down to being conscious, being open and providing the right sort of safe environment for people. That's a really good point about not making assumptions. I know a couple of LGBTQI friends who are in the same sex relationships and they always get the awkward question around the husband, but they don't have a husband, they have a different sort of partner. It's always good to ask the right question and be as inclusive as possible. So for leaders, when is the right time to ask the question? I think if people are asking for help, then you need to be able to ask the questions that enable you to give that help. Sometimes asking permission to ask questions and providing rationale around the reason that you're asking, I want to be able to support you properly or I want to be able to help you out in this situation. I think 
getting to know your people so that people become more willing to share their personal lives when they feel comfortable with people. So feeling like you're in an environment where that information isn't going to be used against you. And very few people would actually use any kind of information against people, say, if they are in same-sex relationship against them. But that doesn't reduce the fear that the individual has around the potential implications for that. And so I think the things that you can do or the conversations that you can have that demonstrate that you are supporting them and that you are willing to be there for them. So I think it's also around just giving people the time to be willing to talk about these things on their own. That's right. Yeah. Especially if you're new to a team or an organisation, it does take a while to open up and really build that rapport with the leaders and the team. And I know through our LGBTI community or our pride community, as we call it, a lot of people in same-sex relationships or in different sexual relationships, they may have come out previously to families and things like that and starting a new organisation, they may go back in and not be open about it and feel vulnerable in that process. Mm, That's a really good point, Sarah, because it's like you have to come out again. Every time you move into a new team, an organisation, it's like going through that, that process again and it can be quite traumatic. There's a lot of anxiety around that. There is still a lot of pressure for a lot of people. They feel that pressure to separate uh, personal life, home life and work life. Why is it still the case? And do you think the pandemic has shifted things? I think, yes, the pandemic has shifted things. And I'll come back to a couple of reasons for that in a minute. I think the pressure was there and is still there to some extent, primarily because of fear. What will this mean for my career? Am I going to be categorised or put into a specific box? Am I only going to get specific opportunities? Is this going to be used against me further down the track? I think those are the sorts of things that primarily drive people keeping things to themselves. Some people are just also more private. So sometimes it's not that they feel uncomfortable sharing that information. They just sometimes want to keep those two lives separate because home life gives them a break from work and work in some circumstances may give you a break from home life and so people feel better if those two things are separate. I think that sort of situation is fine and okay. I think it's where people are keeping things separate because they're fearful or they feel vulnerable or because they feel it's going to be used against them that it is a problem. I do think it has changed a little bit. In part, we've been forced to change. We've got our videos on. We're in each other's rooms. I mean, I appear to be in some of your houses at the moment. It looks like we've welcomed people into our homes without necessarily consciously wanting to. People see the environment that we're in. People see the photos on our wall. They see the cat come in and sit on the computer. Here in my family, you see teenage boys coming in with practically no clothes on. It's those sorts of things that we haven't been able to control to the same degree, so we haven't been able to force that separation. And I think that has allowed people to let down the barriers a little bit. I think the other thing that has happened is we've seen our leaders' homes and environments and where they are, and you've realised that 
they're juggling the same complexities in a home environment. And so they've become a little bit more human. So you're a little bit more comfortable actually allowing yourself to be yourself in front of them because they've become themselves in front of you. There's a couple of things at play there which I think have led to us having some advantages and some people are struggling to sort of work on beds or work in lounge rooms or couches and some people have nice little setups and different things like that. So I think it's been nice to get to see without being nosy to get to see inside people's families because it does help you understand them a little bit more. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I do love seeing other people's homes, not to be nosy, like you said, but it just makes them a lot more human and you feel that you can connect with them just on a different level. So how can organisations create inclusive family workplaces? Can you share any best practices or initiatives that have worked well? There's a combination of things that organisations can do and some of it starts with the policies and the processes and making sure that they're all in place. So having the right leave policies. So we have 18 weeks parental leave for any parent and as long as that's taken within the first two years of a child's life, that is accessible to the parent who is employed by us And it also doesn't matter how they became a parent. If you're an adoptive parent, it's in the first two years that you have that child, so not necessarily the first two years of that child's life. It's about making sure that leave is accessible, that people know about that leave, that you tell the stories and you share the experiences. And we've had really strong uptake from men in our parental leave space, and I think that also gives you an opportunity to build a greater level of awareness amongst everybody in the workplace around what it's like to be a parent, what it's like to juggle. I think there's also other leave that needs to be in place. So there's the carer's leave and we've put changes in place around carer's leave. There's leave around people who are trying to start families and IVF and reproductive leave. So making sure that all of those policies and structures are in place making sure that you put the available support in place for people while they're out so that people can feel like they're still connected if that's what they want to do, that they have an opportunity to ease back into work. And so making sure there's also flexible work arrangements in place and that people are seeing people in different levels participating in those flexible arrangements so they feel like it's real and it's accessible for them. Making sure the policies are there, making sure you talk about it and making sure that people feel like that they can participate in it. We've been particularly proud of, say, in the parental leave perspective, as I mentioned, that a lot of men are taking it. And over the last couple of years, it's been around 60% of people who've taken parental leave have been men. And so I think making sure that that's available and accessible and workable for them is really important. And it can be taken as one day a week. It can be taken in blocks. It can be taken in also different formats as long as it's within that first two years. Wow, 60%. Congrats on that. Was there some sort of employee campaign or storytelling campaign or anything to encourage more men to take parental leave? It was interesting. I think it was something a lot of men wanted because they were very quick to take it on. There's people seeing their leaders do it. So one of our executive committee or our Australian New Zealand Leadership Committee, who was at the time running technology, he's now our COO, he took parental leave 
last year. And so people are seeing very senior people do it, which also makes it encouraging for people to do it and definitely telling stories through the various communication channels. Wow, that's excellent. And also I find language really helps. So calling it parental leave instead of like maternity leave or paternity leave. You mentioned a little bit earlier about changing carer's leave. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So if people are dealing with sick parents, and a lot of people are, if people are dealing with sick children or sick partners and providing that type of leave, making it again flexible in terms of the way people access that and allowing people to also use things like their personal leave and other leave types as well to be able to do what they need to do to take the time to care for people in their immediate family, extended families, when they're dealing with those sorts of things. So making sure that the right support and the right leave is available for them to do what they need to do to take care of their families. And that's a good segue to my next question, which is about caregiver burnout. And it's a real big thing, particularly since the COVID pandemic. So with the challenges in rising childcare costs and ageing parents, what can workplaces do more to help people balance their caring responsibilities and work? So you've just mentioned providing that additional carer's leave as an option, which I think is great. But what can organisations do more of? I think, again, it comes down to talking about it and providing an environment in which people feel safe, saying, I need flexibility to be able to do this and working with their managers to set up their work structures around that, breaking roles down in ways to enable people to maybe work part-time for a period or flexibly access leave and things like that. So telling those stories, providing the support structures in terms of people that people can talk to. So whether that's the standard employee support lines, whether it's having internal people with caring or medical qualifications in our OH&S team, we do have someone who is an allied health practitioner by background and she often helps with people and supports people in that sort of thing because a lot of organisations also have insurances in place that people might be able to access for themselves or others. So I think providing the support, providing the actual opportunities for people to do what they need to do in that space. And I think being open around, we're here to help you and we'll be here if people need to step away for a bit, we'll be here when you get back. Because the challenge for organisations is that if they don't provide an environment where people feel safe accessing those things or if they don't have the policies that support with that, the statistics show that one in four people or 25% of people have considered quitting their role as a result of the challenges that they have. I quite like how Accenture has an OH team that has an allied health professional and many organisations don't have that. It's always been about injury management, preventing LTIs and you just made me think about it like it is about well-being isn't it? It's ticking the box of well-being, making sure that people are cared for really and have that option. I think that's brilliant. It's also recognising that in the occupational health and safety, we've traditionally always thought about that as physical safety. Organisations need to think about the mental safety of their people. So teams need to actually have an ability to work across physical and mental. That's right. 
Many potential employees are looking for flexibility and family-friendly workplaces. Do you have any tips or strategies for leaders to ensure they are walking the talk and not just saying it on their recruitment pages? So again, it's a little bit demonstrating or living by the values and making sure that leaders take leave, that leaders are with their families when they need to be being seen to do that. It's about providing opportunities for people to take flexible work arrangements, say over school holidays or something like that, if people have school-aged children, being able to provide activities also over holidays periods, particularly over COVID. We conducted a lot of initiatives online where parents could set their children up to be part of a program that involved doing activities and things like that online with computers, keep people occupied during things like school holidays. So making sure the supports there, providing programs if programs are available, making sure that people feel safe working from home if that is what is needed for their family in the context of their care arrangements, as well as all of those additional leave options that we talked about. We also have four weeks of paid additional leave that people can buy. So you can buy extra leave, paying that over the whole year so that it's easier to manage and then take it as leave as you need to. That's a great idea. I really love the whole programs for school holidays because it's a struggle for a lot of parents with school-aged children. So how can organisations measure the utilisation and effectiveness of family, carer and wellbeing policies and practices? To some degree, the leave is easy to measure because people are on a leave type and they're either applying for that leave or time reporting mechanisms an organisation might have are recognising that that's what they're doing. So measuring that, employee engagement surveys, specifically asking questions around whether people are accessing flexible arrangements or if people aren't accessing flexible arrangements, do they think it's because they can't or that they don't know they're there? So asking the question, measuring where people are up to, measuring utilisation, measuring attendance at those programs that you conduct, think of the best ways to measure that, and then talking about what you find in that measurement and if you're finding all the policies are in place and no one's actually accessing them and it's because they don't feel like they can safely ask to have a flexible work arrangement, as an example, trying to get to the bottom of that and understand why do people feel like that, what are the things that we need to do to put in place to address those concerns, those challenges that people have. In terms of the engagement survey, how often are you doing that? We do broad brush survey that covers everyone in Australia and New Zealand twice a year. And we use a Gallup survey. And then we also have Pulse things that ask questions or have an opportunity for people to go on and make a point or provide some specific feedback that then rolls up to managers. So we're piloting some tools around that at the moment. Excellent. So the final question, which is how we finish every episode of Higher Potential with Indeed is, what will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? Starts at the top, I think. At the end of the day, unless people see their leaders living the stated core values, then they're not going to believe what is written. It's about making sure that we see leaders participating in the policies and undertaking leave. And it's about being explicit around 
what is available and how people can access it. And it's about making sure that you've got people whose role it is thinking about how we can continuously improve it, as well as people within the business whose role might not be things like inclusion and diversity or engagement, who actually are passionate about it and owning it because they're the ones who have teams, they're the ones who have people who need to live and feel the right experience. So you've got to make sure you've got that combination of people whose job it is to look after it in conjunction with people who are taking sponsorship and ownership responsibility around enabling it to happen. The other key things is measuring our leaders on and in this space. So we do measure our leadership team around the business outcomes, around things like revenue and key retention, attracting the right people and balance of diversity across all levels is something that is measured for our leadership team on the same level as those financial measures. And so as soon as you start doing that, they definitely take a lot of notice. Oh, yes. I love that when it's off equal weighting. <laughs> so it's not an and and it's not a like, get this stuff done first. Here's what you need to focus on next. It's on a scorecard. They are at the same level. Yes. A holistic approach. Love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation, Sarah. You're welcome. Glad to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to Higher Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.